0: And close Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick and give some of my thoughts and commentary on them. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Dick's 1957 novel, Eye in the Sky. Eye in the Sky is a novel of the Cold War surveillance state, but it's also a novel of false realities and how each of us holds within us a delusional view of reality. So it's about subjectivity. The conclusion Dick seems to come to is that most of us, if not all of us, live in distinct mental realms that really cannot be known or fully understood to outside observers. And the world that each of us creates for ourselves is bizarre to all others. With these internal thoughts impossible to know, Dick decided to write a novel in which he has the groups of characters live through the worldview of others using a scientific concept or science fiction concept. The result is a fascinating and brilliant novel of suspicion amid shifting realities. What I talked about in previous episodes is also a novel of utopias. In at least two cases, the characters inhabit a utopia that exists as an ideal world for one of the people, the creator of the world. Uh, But for everyone else, they're horrific and horrible. I think Dick may be casting down on the entire concept of utopia. In each of us, if each of us created an ideal world, the result would be a terror for most of them. And let's not forget that prior prior to writing I in the Sky, Dick had completed a series of novels all about political dystopias, but every dystopia to the right person is a utopia. And so, even though I do think that I in the Sky represents a break in Dick's writing where he's concerned more and more with false fronts and shifting realities. And he'll continue that theme at least until he completes The uh, Man in the High Castle. And it never really goes away from his writing entirely. But still, I think there's a bit of consistency with his earlier work in the sense that he's playing with this idea of of these ideal political systems. Now, as I talked about in previous episodes, this novel is the is very character driven and I think this sets it apart from some of Dick's other novels, which are more idea-based. This one really allows Dick to explore the minds and the you know, of these different characters. Um, the problem is he needs to kind of be a little bit cagey about who these characters are and what they think and their values until we kind of get thrust into their mind and then there's a kind of a mystery of whose mind is this in, you know, whose world has, who has created this. And so therefore he can't, he kind of has to unfold who these characters are over time. But that actually turns out really interesting in this, char- in this, this book. And a couple of characters in particular are revealed to be entirely different than how they present themselves. But again, that's really Dick's point in this story. Um, so if you've been listening along in this series, you, you've kind of heard all this stuff before. But um, now I did look at the exegesis in my last uh, examination of Eye in the Sky. And I, the conclusion I came to look, well, first of all, the exegesis is Dick's writings of the late mid to late 70s in which he really explored this event that happened to him in March of 1974. Um, and he explored it kind of philosophically, but he also explored it through his own writing. And one thing he tended to do a lot was project his thoughts of the late mid to late 70s onto his earlier works, and he would kind of give commentary on them. And and this is this creates this idea that there's kind of a continuity or a wholeness to Dick's uh, creation. And I don't really think that's true. I think a lot of that is Dick's own um, projection, but it's still interesting to look at what he thought of Eye in the Sky later in his life. And I looked up all the references I could find in the published version. And he always kind of says the same thing about Eye in the Sky and that he sets it next to other works that deal with shifting realities and subjectivity and, and you know how we experience reality. He really One thing he really came back to a couple times is he thought he was really creative in how he played with time here in the sense that in the real world, the quote unquote real world, the characters only experience all the events of the novel in a few seconds but they, they, they go through whole days, and he compares this to dreaming. And, but in general, he doesn't really make this one of the central texts that he analyzes in in the exegesis. It's more like these are thoughts, he or this is a novel that he puts alongside other novels that, that he thinks are a little bit more important on this theme. And I looked at all the other references, and there wasn't that much more to add to it, so he didn't really change his tone throughout what, you know, the published version of the exegesis on Eye in the Sky. So that's a bit unfortunate, but it shows some consistency, at least. Um, So I suppose this will be a shorter episode. I'll just jump into a little bit more of the plot and and give you the play-by-play. I have a few more themes I want to talk about, but I want to save some things for the the next two episodes, episodes four and five in this series. So um, let's just go back into the story in detail and um so the first half of the novel sort of goes like this in the first part of the novel the first half of the novel we learn about how Jack Hamilton is losing his job because the company security officer considered his wife Marsha a security threat now this security officer is named uh, Charlie McFay and he's sort of friends of the Hamiltons but he still has to do his job and has to question the the, the loyalty of Marsha because she's been involved in a lot of leftist activities. So basically she thinks he's a, she's a communist. He's also somewhat attracted to Marsha and, and seems he wouldn't mind their marriage breaking up. Uh, Jack Hamilton is given a choice, either lose the wife or lose the job. And he basically, basically tried to, decides to lose the job. He goes out for drinks he, and even McFay invites him out for drinks and with Marsha. But before they go for drinks they tour the bevatron particle deflator um, and an accident throws them and five other people into it and this kind of begins the false realities that these characters experience they wake up in a hospital and you know everyone seems basically fine one guy uh, named sylvester is more seriously damaged now the hamiltons go home with another woman joan reese and Jack does a couple things. First, he lies. And second, he makes fun of Joan Reese and is harsh on her. And for both of these things, he's punished. For the lie, he's stung by a bee. And for being mean to Joan Reese, a swarm of locusts comes in and, and basically attacks his home. And this really starts to show that things are weird in this world, something that characters already started to realize based on how characters talked and the way they experience things and look at things. So the world just seems different. One major difference they realize soon is that prayers are answered. So Bill Laws, the tour guide who was also in the accident, has a charm that can cure him. And there are other examples of prayers. Manic can fall from heaven if people are hungry. Basically, all the needs come from prayer. It, it's kind of a very interesting form of post-scarcity. While Dick wrote a lot of stuff about technological post-scarcity, like the autofact, here you have the the prayer factory, I guess, where people don't really need to work because everything can come through prayer. And the question is like, why does anyone do anything? What is the value of work in that context? And Dick actually gives an interesting answer to this. Um, So Jack Hamilton begins looking for a new job and he visits his friend, Dr. Tillingford, and they have this really bizarre interview. Jack is told that he'll be paid in credits towards salvation. All necessities come to people through prayer. So the only thing that you really need to work for is salvation. His work will be in the only legitimate science that's left, and that's theophonics, the talking the communication with God. And what we learn here is that God is real. In particular, we're given the God of, of Second Babism, which is a new religious movement based on the, the real religion of, of Babism. It's connected to the Baha'i faith. It's kind of in that same tradition. It's, a, it's kind of a, a heresy of Islam that, that went off and became its own new religious movement. Now, second Babism seems to be a, a variant somewhat invented for this, but I don't know. Maybe there is a, a real type. I'm sure there are people who called themselves the second Bab. The, the Babism, actually, the term Bab is the prophet of this religion. But anyway, anyways, now instead of communism, this intentional employer is worried about his sexual purity and does he drink and these kinds of moral questions. On his way out, he's investigated by a man named Brady who asked about his N rating. And eventually Jack is challenged to him by a child of faith, and he loses. Brady, his basically inquisitor, is able to pray for answers to questions and easily wins. In fact, there's even an angel that comes down and helps Brady because of prayer. So it's, again, we're seeing evidence that God is real in this world. Jack goes to a bar where he sees McFay, and they discuss how world, strange this world is and how this bar is a necessary part of the moral order for dialectical reasons virtue doesn't have any meaning if there's not sin. Laws comes in. He's with a prostitute named Silky. Silky tries to invite Jack to be alone with her, but he's more interested in talking with his his friends at the moment and trying to figure out things about this world. They investigate the bar and learn more about how prayers work by jerry-rigging the cigarette machine to make an infinite amount of brandy. Hamilton and McFay go to an old Second Bab church. They ask for an umbrella to be blessed with holy water. Then they pray and they begin to rise into the sky just like Mary Poppins. They ride up and see that the world is geocentric, that heaven and hell are real places. They also see a large eye overlooking the universe. The umbrella catches fire and they fall to earth. Instead of dying, they land near Cheyenne, Wyoming. Hamilton, well McFay goes back to California and Hamilton visits a central, the central temple of Baptism. There he learns more, a little bit more of the religion, but also that Arthur Sylvester, one of the original people in the accident, is listed on a wall with all the plaques listing all the names of the people who are saved and going to go to heaven. Hamilton realizes that this world is created by Arthur Sylvester's mind. Hamilton returns to California to confront him. He goes back first to his home and sees Marcia and Bill Laws are there, and they have changed physically. Bill Laws has become a stereotypical... Um, black man according to racist assumptions so this suggests that Arthur Sylvester is a racist and Marsh has become fat and, and kind of ugly and this is Sylvester's assumptions about feminists or radical women in general nevertheless they go to the hospital and battle Sylvester who's able to call on divine help to, to save him but I think I think it's Joan Reese knocks him from the bed he's he goes unconscious and this takes them out of Sylvester's mental realm but instead of everything going back to normal, instead of waking up at the Bevatron, they seem to have entered a new world. And the, the first thing they learn about this new world is that there's no gender. Marsha's sexual organs are all gone. So she goes from being kind of overweight to being completely sexless. This is something Jack notices right away. And all the other characters are also sexless. So this is they're in some kind of new world where some kind of puritanism is at work. All right, so that's where I left off in the last episode. Um, So picking up, we're on chapter nine, if you're reading along. So we get a brief glimpse of the characters in the real world and the real world starts to creep into our story a little bit more, starting in the second half of the novel. And it seems like the the structure of these false realities is starting to fracture a little bit. But so we get this glimpse of the real world and the eight accident victims are still on the ground and completely unconscious. Um, this has all happened just in a few seconds, of of course. But within their minds, back in the world that they're in, experiencing, they're coming to terms with their loss of their sexual identity. Marsha immediately knows who's to blame, and while in the first world there's a lot of questions about what, even what's going on, they now know that. They're existing in mental realms created by people. And they they actually know why Arthur Sylvester's world came up first and because he was the most, he was the one who stayed conscious longest after the accident. And therefore he got to kind of set the rules. In this case with Sylvester unconscious, it shifted to someone else who was momentarily conscious in the real world, and that's Edith Pritchett. Martian immediately knows that Edith is the only one who could do that. So this is the least of a mystery. And basically, she concludes she's the only one capable of such a perverse Victorian universe. Jack Hamilton, who is still working at this electronics company that he got hired in the last time, but now the, the kind of the nature of the world has changed and the nature of the job has changed. It's no longer theophonics, but there's a consistency here in some characters and, and settings. So now he's being praised by his co-workers for success in a pet show where he entered his cat, N- Nini Numcat and so it seems edith pritchett you know has some fondness for pets and those cuddly events of life like pet shows and i don't know bridge games or i don't know you know it's it's that kind of world we're in we're in the world of a kind of a very victorian very conservative middle-aged woman who wants you know kind of an ideal sanitized world for her children now, his boss is still this Dr. Guy Tillingford, but he's, his nature has changed. He's become a very folksy and relaxed manager who attempts to lead via moral suasion rather than uh, authoritarianism, in, but there's kind of an it's still a surveillance state in the, in a sense. Before it was religious and about morality, here it's it's given us to the folksiness. And if that's surprising to you, remember that Philip Dick wrote a story called The Mold of Yancey in which folksiness is a cover for... Uh, ideological homogeneity like here's a bit of what tillingford says hamilton asks if he's going to be fired and he said fire you what on earth for tillingford chuckled weakly. think nothing of it my boy your father was one of my dearest friends sometimes i'll have to tell you how furious we used to get each other chip off the old block eh jack end quote uh, so this is a bit of his folksiness uh, and he starts to explain more about the world because tillingford plays this role of kind of explaining things to us. Um, He explains the job to Hamilton. So it's not theophonics anymore, but now they're devoted to using the electrical industry to raise moral and cultural standards of the masses. Tillingford gives Hamilton an article to peruse about Sigmund Freud's, about how the sexual drive is unhealthy in humans and entirely unnecessary, that in a civilized human being, there's no need for the sexual drive. And he goes farther saying, true artistic ability emerges from the liberation from sexual desire. Hamilton's job will be to help popularize this idea using electronics. So in this sense, he, we're reminded, I guess, of, of Alan Perstall in The Man Who Japed, in which you have morality spread through the communications industry, through the mass media. Now, Tillianford also explains that Hamilton should take it easy because the company orchestra will be entering in a music competition. So again, we get another thing that Edith likes. Edith Pritchett likes classical music. She only like certain classical music, by the way. She doesn't like Bartok or Stravinsky. We assume she likes, you know, Mozart and Beethoven and Schubert, I suppose. Maybe Schubert's even too racy for, I don't know, just kind of guessing here. There's a, there's a few examples given in the text, but certainly Bart... Uh, yeah, it's Bartok is definitely off limits. Now, when he leaves his office, Silky is there. Now, Silky was the prostitute at the bar in the previous world, but now she's also asexual and she's sitting in his car. She drives him home, but they first stop at Safe Harbor, which is where Silky, Silky works. They, so this is where the Golden Claw used to be. The Golden Claw was the bar in the previous world, but now it's called the Safe Harbor. And they do have beers, but uh, it's a much more moral and sanctified and and strict and puritanical place than the Golden Glow used to be. Because in the Golden Glow, it was about providing, you had to have a place for sin, for virtue to have any meaning, for salvation to have any meaning. Here, Edith Pritchard doesn't want to have any sin at all, so she just abolishes and eradicates those categories. So hanging out with friends, having beer is okay, and that's what they have here. This whole place has been remodeled to have white tablecloths, folksy paintings on the wall. The beer is, you know, is, is good, um, but I don't think they have like brandy and whiskey and the hard liquors. At least I don't recall them having that. Now Silky tells Hamilton about the Mobilized Mental Health Association, which is a, which is a group almost everyone is a member of. Hamilton order, orders meat, which horrifies Silky. And as a jape, Hamilton asks Silky to have sex, but she doesn't even seem to be aware of what sex is. And they leave to return to Marcia. And in this world, Silky is a friend of Marsha, something she wasn't in the previous world. So our the relationships are all friendly, all folksy, cozy. Everyone is nice to one another. Everything is nice and clean and neat. Um, there's no sex. There's really no sin. So it's again, it's this projection of the ideal world for a very puritanical Victorian mother who wants to have this very bougie, clean, uh, and nice uh, existence. So Jack and Silky go back to, or go to the Hamilton house. And Marcia and Jack discuss Silky. And it's a kind of a strange conversation because Silky seems to be a prostitute, but prostitutes don't really exist in this world. So it seems like Edith Pridget didn't really know what to do with this girl, who's a barfly. But without sexuality, she really doesn't have a role in in the society. So she's sort of become someone who became sort of friendly with Marsha. Now, Jack starts to examine the newspaper at this, and he learns strange things about this world, like one of which is that the entire country of Russia has been abolished. And Jack confronts Marsha on her views about Silky and her acceptance of Silky, and Especially how Marcia seems very happy that Silky is desexualized. And he starts to think that Marcia actually is enjoying this world without sex. And there starts to be a conflict within their marriage over this. Um, because Jack learns that there are things about this world that Marcia likes. And there's going to be other characters who actually seem to like this world or at least want to accept it and and think that there's some value here and that they could like live here. Marcia likes that this world by ruining sex has removed a lot of the BS that are in relationships between men and women. And so to really to get back at Marsha and to challenge her, he threatens to have sex with Silky and he escorts Silky into the basement. Now they listen to the traditional classical music. The, now the Hamilton seem to have have had a collection of modernist music, but that's all been removed from the library. So just like Russia, The modernists and atonality, I guess, has been removed from music. He tries to make an advance towards Silky, but fails, only piquing her interest about a kiss. But before he can kiss her, she disappears and vanishes. Um, Jack Hamilton goes upstairs and finds that Edith Pritchard has come to visit. And while she's there, she has abolished the category of women like Silky. So... Instead of he, she does. We don't think, they think they don't even say the word prostitute here. It's just she abolishes the category of women like Silky. So um, this is really Edith's ability in this world as kind of its commander is that she can just remove categories of things she doesn't like. And it, as the rules of this are revealed, it's not just physical categories. It can be cons- concepts uh, or ideas, sets of values, entire nations. Um, in, a, in a sense, it's it, it reminds me a bit of The Lathe of Heaven, in which in there, I, it's been a while since I read that book, the Ursula Le Guin one, but as I recall, it has something to do with people able to change the world via dreams. And so it's kind of an experiment in utopianism and social reforming and social tweaking by, by governments, but it's done through through dreaming here you just have one person who can outright abolish things she doesn't like it doesn't seem she's creative though and I I think that's a bit of the real weakness of Edith Pritchett's vision is her only power seems to be abolition she doesn't have the power to establish new things she just is able to keep things she likes Um, but the minute something offends her she can abolish it and so the end result is going to be the basically the annihilation of, of all things in the world so after this, uh, Marcia confesses to Jack that she's essentially a collaborator with Edith and that she's working with her to purge the world of distasteful things. And that includes Silky, um, who was already not really a prostitute since that category was abolished, but I think her role is kind of undefined. She's, she, you know, I, I think in a sense because Edith abolishes these categories, she doesn't create any new things for people. So... She just didn't really have a role Um, They Even like when Jack tries to have sex with her It doesn't even really work And he kind of gives up because it was futile Um, But yeah, I I think Dick was doing Was was on to kind of an interesting idea here About uh, a certain type of utopianism That's based on just getting rid of things That people don't like Rather than creating something new I suppose i can think of man in high castle here of course because in that in that novel you have a world in which the the axis wins the second world war and then we don't get much on like what's going on globally it's all set in a very a couple locations in the united states but we get some of the background of what's going on in the world and certainly the nazis are capable of, of abolishing things but at the same time i don't think we get the sense of any creativity coming out of that totalitarianism presented there Anyways, I'll come back to this theme perhaps when I when I look at The Man in the High Castle in a couple weeks. Now, the rest of the group comes in. So we get this nice moment where all the friends come in to play a game. Bill Laws is happy with the changes as well, and he actually talks to Jack Hamilton about it, saying, you know, geez, I've been promoted to running, running a research lab at a soap company. Now, this is something Pritchett keeps. She keeps... Soap factories. She doesn't keep most industrial work, but she likes soap, so she keeps soap, right? Has has to keep that. I'm sure candles too. Yankee candles is probably also alive and well in Edith Pritchard's world. But he says, like, at least I have a job here. I'm not reduced to like running tours. And he actually here gets into a little bit about racial politics and and you know what life is like for black scientists in the Jim Crow world. That there are there is kind of a glass ceiling for them, and that no matter how hard he works or how intelligent he is or what degrees he gets, he's going to always get kind of the worst job in any in any firm. And he says, "At least here, I'm getting promoted." Jack Hamilton, however, is committed to breaking up this world as soon as he can, despite the desires of his wife and his new friend. I suppose in this world, everyone is friends with everyone. You know, it's, it's very cuddly. Now he looks for. Ninny Ninny, numcat his cat, and the group learns that Pritchett abolished the category of cat. Um, In secret, at the same time, Reese confesses to Jack that she, Arthur Sylvester, and David Pritchett are planning to drug Edith's drink and hopefully to end this world. Jack, furious at uh, Edith taking away his cat, agrees to help them do that. So we have a kind of split in this world where some people agree to... um, kind of accept this world and go along with it and and make the best of it. And others want to undo it. And notice Arthur Sylvester, who's the villain in the previous world, is now, you know, on the side of the people trying to um, abolish this world. And there's something talked about. I don't know if it's this part of the novel or somewhere else in that people aren't really really to blame. They're not malevolent in it. They are really creating the world based on how they see it. And how they experience it. So there's really not a level of malevolence here. It's 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 they think it's normal. They think it's natural. So, anyways, that gets us uh, through another three chapters of of the book. So we're coming to the end. we've only been in two worlds, and it's kind of a shame Dick couldn't go on longer, or had maybe if he had been more efficient in the early part of the story, I don't know how he could've. It's even though it's two hundred and fifty pages, it's a quick read and he, he, if anything, he goes too fast at times. But it would have been nice to see like eight different worlds. That, that's really my, what I would like to see. We only get four here. Um, but even with this, you start to see like, you know, he's got two and a half whole worlds still to get through before the end of the novel and we're really getting to the end. So things really accelerate towards the end of the story. It, it kind of works in a sense because we start to see the, this whole fantasy realm break down at a macro level. Um, so in a sense, it seems it's not permanent at the end of the day. But anyways, that does it for what I have to say about this. What would be the. The fourth part of, of the book, I'll, I'll have two more episodes on Eye in the Sky. I'll talk about uh, not only the rest of the story, but also some issues of. Of. Mental illness, that'll be something I'll, I'll focus on next time, because that's a theme that it comes back to a lot is mental illness. And so I'll I'll say some more about that. So anyways, thank you so much for listening. If you have any your own comments about Eye in the Sky, please leave them below or write me an email at 100 pagescastgmailcom at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Um, but in any case, I'll be back with part five of my comments on I in the Sky. My tired thoughts warm. that live.